Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm going to tell you something that wasn't in the media, um, but I, I heard it from a bishop, an Italian bishop, who was present when the Pope, after his Hungary visit, now about three weeks ago, he had the Italian bishop conference uh, in an audience alone with him. He had a prepared speech, and in a prepared speech, he said, Europe is losing its heart. Hmm. Rediscover your Christian roots in Europe. Rediscover them. And then he put the paper aside, and he said, just prepare if you do that, Brussels will come after you as they do with Hungary. Hmm. And then he took his paper back up. (laughs) Edward Habsburg is Archduke of Austria and Hungarian ambassador to the Vatican and the Order of Malta. He's also a husband, a dad, and a regular guy. He talks about Star Wars and Dune, Harry Potter and James Bond. He's probably the first member of the Order of the Golden Fleece to have written the screenplay for a zombie movie. So I asked him about his family, his work, and his ideas about Christianity and politics in the 21st century on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about religion, history, and culture. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz and I get to ask interesting people who thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format in relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. If you want to take the conversation further, please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Archduke Edward Habsburg, the Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta. He is Archduke of Austria and the great-great-grandson of Emperor Franz Josef. He is the author of a number of books on topics from Thomas Aquinas to James Bond to Harry Potter and a children's book called Dubby, the Double-Headed Eagle. His most recent book is The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times, and that's the book we are talking about today. He and his wife, Baroness Maria Theresia von Gudenus, have six children. And I have read in the New York Times that you can get along with anybody. (laughs) So welcome to the show, Your Excellency. Thank you very much for having me on Almost Good Catholics. <laughs> Would you like to share a joke to get started? My favorite Habsburg joke on Twitter. Yo mama is so ugly, she fell out of the Habsburg family tree and hit every branch on the way down. <laughs> I, I had one, uh, a young Austrian nobleman walks into a bar and sees the soccer game, the football game on TV and asks the barman, who's playing? And the bartender says, uh, Austria and Hungary. And the young Austrian nobleman says, oh, yeah, who are they playing against? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris, I I, let me tell you, this joke has a long history. Mm. Uh, It has been told about, uh, well, about Otto Habsburg, uh, our head of family and the famous European parliamentarian as happening in the European Parliament. And I asked him once whether this ever happened. And he told (laughs) me, no, it hasn't. In fact, it has already been told about Emperor Franz Joseph at the beginning of the 20th century. And just to be, uh, to be a spoilsport, 
there never has been an Austria-Hungary uh, football team. Austria and Hungary always had their own football teams historically. So, sorry, but the joke is very good and very funny. And uh, whenever I meet it, I smile. <laughs> very well, very well. So how did you become Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta? And what do you do on a given day? And how did you manage to arrange not one, but two papal visits from Pope Francis uh, to Hungary? Oh, wow. That's three very different questions. Yeah, we'll start with the, 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 Go ahead. One we'll start with the, with the first one. I, I never in my life thought I would be a diplomat. Never in mm. my life. I was many things in my life. I was... Uh, scriptwriter, I was novelist, I, um, I worked on Thomas Aquinas, I uh, did animated cartoons. Uh, as I like to say online, I wrote one script for a zombie movie. <laughs> and uh, so that's not your typical Hungarian diplomat. But I am Hungarian, and uh, when the Hungarian government was looking for an ambassador to the Holy See, uh, they approached me because my father was ambassador of the Order of Malta to Hungary, so he knew a few people there. And they said, why wouldn't your son want to? And, and I said, first of all, I'm not the ambassador type. Um, and uh, I, I explained the stuff I just told you. Also, I said, my Hungarian is not particularly good. It was very, very weak at the time. And then um, they said, well, would you want to try? Would you want to try to get your Hungarian up to scratch and, uh, and just jump into it? And funnily enough, the moment I was asked, I knew I was going to do it, although I had this absolutely weird concept of diplomats. I thought these were people standing around at receptions with, with hold, holding, holding uh, cocktail glasses in their uh, limpid hands and smiling <laughs> limpidly and not being able to say anything um, because out of fear of, of offending somebody. That was my idea of diplomat. I had no idea. I had no idea what an incredibly great, exciting and wonderful job this is. So I'm here now since eight years, which is not typical. You usually change every four or five years. But uh, the Vatican is not a typical place. It's a bit like a multilateral place like the United Nations or so. It's not a classical bilateral embassy. That's to your first question. To your second question, everyday life here is, I think, a very interesting mixture of very normal things that most people can relate with and very, very unique things. Normal is you sit in front of your computer, you answer emails, mm. you have telephone calls, you spend a lot of your time on your phone having conversations with people on WhatsApp, Signal, collecting information, passing out information, um, you know, trying to understand what's happening around the Holy See. And then, of course, uh, at least once a day, you go to an event. Events are usually um, mostly holy masses. Hmm. So I, I like to say I'm being paid for going to mass. That's nice. Which is, which is very nice. <laughs> and uh, you go, you know, the, say the embassy of Peru are celebrating their uh, national holiday. They would, they would invite to a holy mass mm -hmm. or, and or a reception. And sometimes they would invite to... Uh, to a conference um, to, to, to honor their, their... And so you go to a mixture of holy masses, conferences, uh, encounters. You have, visit, uh, you have visits from co colleague ambassadors. You visit them. And at, at those events, you usually um, you get into chats with other colleagues. But this is also your occasion to speak to Vatican people, to Holy mm. See people. Because at these events, the Vatican always sends somebody. And this can be... a an opportunity to talk about upcoming papal visits or uh, 
or the other other secret stuff you do and um, that's really great uh, and then um, sometimes you have bombastic holy masses in St. Peter's where you were where you were um, two or three times a year you wear your full uniform which is a white tie um, coattails a black vest um, and a decoration in my case I always wear the golden fleece which ah. I'm one of the one of the Habsburgs that has been honored being part of this knightly order and um, that's of course something very special because they never see a golden fleece I'm also one of the very few members of the order yes. that actually gets to wear the big version of the decoration because no not the biggest the mid the middle one yeah so if you if you go on the internet and you google say Emperor Franz Joseph and you see him in his blue jacket uniform you will always see this middle long decoration dangling down under his throat I, that is you don't get to to wear this usually except if you wear coattails and white tie and that's rare but i do it as a work uniform our work uniform as diplomats to the holy see is uh coattails and white tie so yes. that is but these are exceptions and these are the situations where you also sometimes run into the pope you meet him rarely um you meet him once a year for the reception uh new year's reception of the pope for the diplomats and uh, that's when you can decide how to spend your four seconds with him you either make a joke or you say <laughs> something nice or you you ask him about something important that you need to know for instance last year um in beginning of january um i didn't know i knew we had a feeling the pope would come but i didn't know it so i approached him and I spent the first two seconds of our talk saying, are we going to have a Tokai together in Hungary this year? <laughs> and then he laughed and said, that would be really nice, but I'm coming. I'm coming to Hungary. So, you know, but yeah. sometimes I just make a joke. And that is sort of the mix. And then I have a little embassy here. I'm calling you actually from the residence of my embassy now. And uh, I, I have a little team of six, seven people. And uh, it's very nice. And in in the down in where, where you get in is the embassy and the first floor is the residence so i have my family uh tramping around in the <laughs> above my head when i have meetings downstairs yeah no but that's that's a for, that's a really helpful insight to your daily life and also a tremendous achievement to have the pope come twice to hungary we know how important his travels are to him when he was prohibited by his health to go to africa he went the next year you know and he yes. regrets it if he can't come how did you how did you swing that? How did you get him to come? And what was it for? And uh, what reflections do you have about, about that? I always try to um, impress on my government that it's all because of the fantastic work of their brilliant ambassador. <laughs> but in reality, of course, it's far more complicated than that. Um, the Pope, as we found out at his second visit this year, um, he has a real a real deep and almost corny love towards Hungary. Hmm. Uh, I always felt that, you know, with Pope Francis, you gather little grains of information and in little reactions, I said, wow, he really likes the Hungarians. But of course, no journalist would believe me that because they would all think he hates them because of migrants and all that. So I always thought, wow, he reacts especially yeah. nice when Hungarians are around. And all of that came pouring out in his second visit to Hungary. Which, in, in fact, I think the fact that he came to Hungary a second time is an expression of that. He said such nice things about us. So as much as I want to imagine that I had a great part in this, it was, from his side, a great wish to come. 
And in, in fact, he told us he came three times to visit our people. The first time was when he went to Romania and he went to um, Transylvania and he went to Chicxomyo, which is the greatest Hungarian pilgrimage place in the world, but it's in Romania, in the Hungarian-speaking part of Romania. And he insisted of going there and meeting the Hungarians. And he met a few hundred thousand. And that's when he arrived uh, in 2021 for his seven-hour visit to the Eucharistic Congress in Budapest. Yeah. The first line he said to our president, Ada, was, this is my second meeting with your people. The first one was um, when I went in 2019 to Romania. So he really likes us. And, um, and so I didn't have that, that hard of a job. My, my government also made it really easy on me because in the last year I had my Prime Minister Orban coming. A few weeks later, my president, Katalin Novak, and they really both had, they hit it out of the, out of the field with him. Mm. They really got along. So, yep, that's how this happened. No, and that's, that's very beautiful. And I want that to be this, our second topic of discussion is what is a nation? And uh, because your ancestors ruled over an empire that had many nations as part of it and then starting a hundred years ago as we all know every nation got a country every country got a nation and so serbia would want to be serbia and just like today there are places where there are kurds but they don't have a national home right there's tension tension there and um, the question as i wrote it to you is your book is organized around seven rules and as a catholic who largely shares your worldview i heartily subscribe to them get married have children be catholic practice your faith Stand for law and justice. Be brave, die well, and know who you are. But your rule number three is believe in the empire, and I think it needs a little explaining. So what's a good empire as opposed to the evil galactic variety? And what is the word you introduce here, subsidiarity? Uh, one thing, you know, I don't get to meet archdukes very often, but when I read what you say, I understand everything you say because you refer to George Lucas and Frank Herbert and people that, that ordinary you know, people all over the world know. <laughs> well, first of all, I wrote this book for American audiences. I, I put myself into the um, mindset of Americans as far as I could. And I, uh, of course, I don't have to stretch it very hard because I, I'm a great science fiction fan. So when I thought about Empire, and I, I honestly had a learning curve myself because when I prepared this book, and I realized subsidiarity is an important word. It is something... I like to say uh, in my interviews, it is the antidote against globalism. Hmm. It, is, uh, it is also the antidote against, well, against many things that we are afraid of. And we have grown to be afraid of over the last uh, three or four years um, in our world. Um, and, and it is not only a principle of the, of the Habsburg Empire and also before that of the Holy Roman Empire, but also a strong principle on which the United States are built. Um, the idea, you know, you are United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, the same way that in the Habsburg Empire, the single nations were under one great idea, but uh, living together with a great respect for the single nations, the single languages, their mores, their customs, their rights, their legal systems, their parliaments, their institutions. This is something the Habsburgs did from the very first moment that they entered the European stage. Um, Rudolf von Habsburg in 1273 became the first Habsburg king of the Holy Roman Empire. And you know, the idea of empire that some people have after Star Wars is uh, perhaps a bit closer to Napoleon's idea of empire. Is like, 
um, a nation that uh, conquers other nations or an evil emperor suppressing with armed forces or with stormtroopers, if you want, mm -hmm. um, an entire galaxy. And it's one size fits all. No matter on which planet you go, there's stormtroopers everywhere and there's misery until uh, a, a band of, of, um, of, of rebels stand up and, and uh, finally destroy the Death Star. Yeah. But it's, it's not like that. It's not like that with the Holy Roman Empire and it's not like that with the Habsburg Empire at all. Because the, Holy, uh, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire had to juggle an incredibly complex set of countries, dukedoms, princedoms, kingdoms, and he had no real power to do so. He had no, no capital. There was no capital of the Holy Roman Empire. There, there was no army of the Holy Roman Emperor. He didn't even have diplomats. There were no ambassadors of the Holy Roman Emperor because he didn't speak for everybody. Hmm. What he had was he was anointed and he had the the authority that came with his position. He was respected, but it was a lot of diplomacy, a lot of convincing, a lot of haggling and juggling and negotiation and uh, pressure. So it's far closer to the emperor in the Dune novels that has to somehow negotiate between different, different great houses and uh, keep them all balanced and um, do some backstabbing if necessary. We, we never did that. We were always good and nice. Um, <laughs> so, but what, what, I, what I'm trying to say yeah. here is, um, for instance, if you look at the European Union nowadays, mm -hmm. um, Hungary, my country, sometimes feels that uh, Brussels wants to interfere too much in, um, in our local affairs, our local business, our local decisions, our local um, uh, legal decisions. Um, and this reminds me very much of the situation when Emperor Joseph II decided that you don't need uh, a local Hungarian um, parliament anymore. You don't need local Hungarian structures anymore. You don't even need the crown in Budapest. Mm -hmm. he, he, he got all the crowns to, to Vienna and locked them up in the Schatzkammer and said, from now on, everybody will speak German. And we will rule our empire from a central <laughs> town, Vienna. And everything's the same. Because he wanted to copy yeah. uh, what the, the, the great people in Prussia did. But Prussia was something very, very, very different from the Habsburg Empire. It was exactly, it was a small nation state, if you want so. Mm -hmm. while, 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 while the Habsburg Empire was something very different. So as the Hungarians helped the Habsburgs uh, rediscover subsidiarity and the respect for the single nation within the empire, sometimes in a bloody way and sometimes with lots of suffering for both sides. So the Hungarians stand up for their ideas in a Europe where, as, as our Prime Minister Orban um, said when he visited the Pope, he said afterwards, they sometimes tell us that your Hungary and Poland don't stand for European values anymore. And I ask if the founders of the European Union, Schumann de Gasperi and Adenauer, would come back today where would they find the European values in Brussels or in Central Europe? And that's the point. So, so you, talking about the tension between um, the right of a nation to be a nation, and at the same time, I, I think the sign of a matureness of a nation is its ability to participate in a supernatural structure if and when the single nation is respected within this structure. And there seem to be moments within the EU where we don't have the feeling that this is the case. 
And there were moments in history where countries under the Habsburgs felt that it wasn't the case. And it always went well with the Habsburg Empire when this was respected. Moving over to the United States, you are United States. You sometimes tend to forget this. You have the, a tendency to see yourself as one nation, which you are. Um, but, uh, but in theory, the United States are built from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And you have strong states and a weak federal level, at least in theory. You could see glimpses of that in the last years when sometimes states just went against federal decisions. Yeah. And uh, for, for many people in Europe, that was a sign of hope. The, the United States and the, their very unique blend of how they are built are in our very complicated and very troubled times, for many in Europe, a sign of hope. Um, because things are possible in the states that sometimes don't seem possible in Europe. Well, that... You have anticipated then the next question, which is how do you defend against experts who are making us miserable for, for the greater good from a centralized um, capital? And exactly as you say, in the United States, the principle exists, at least, that it's a, we call it federalism, that every yes. state makes its own laws, that uh, and only in matters of commerce or defense do we have to rely on, on the center in, in Washington. But that has, as you say, quite correctly been eroded over time. I think long ago, if we're talking about the 16th or 17th or 18th century, it was just took so long to send your messengers by horse and pass around some new law. So subsidiarity made a lot of sense just as a, as a pragmatic choice. But, but now with you can send an email or you can make a phone call, you can control a lot, a lot more. And so then we get... Can, yeah. can, I, can, I, can I say something? Yeah, to that? yeah. The same argument, the same argument sometimes is, is being made about do you need diplomats? Now... Diplomats originally were people who stood for an emperor, a king, a prince, mm -hmm. the doge, the pope, in another country, without the ability of always calling at home and asking, well, what is our, our, our position on this? So you had to send somebody who really, who really knew what you thought about situations and could decide in your absence. And now the question is, would you say you don't need diplomats anymore because um, the Pope and Orban can just speak on Zoom yeah. and, um, and you can send an email and you can, you can download YouTube videos and you can learn. You need diplomats because diplomats are on the ground and that's the principle of subsidiarity. It is, of course, a Catholic principle of social teaching, of Catholic social teaching, because it makes sense. People, the closer you are to, to, to the reality of the people, the better you can decide how things are being handled. It's, it's very simple. We are built locally. Man can think locally. Right now, everybody tries to imagine. You, you can tell what it means to think globally if you spend a few hours on Twitter and try to read every tweet, <laughs> which is stupidly enough. I sometimes do not for hours, but it's dizzying. Yeah. Human beings shouldn't be in this situation. You, you should have your family, your surroundings, your neighborhood, perhaps your town and perhaps your area the the highest level that you can reasonably think about is the nation uh, or the state perhaps everything above that is is far away and and everything supernatural is is madness it can work but it can only work under certain circumstances what we have right now is many people feel totally powerless because mm -hmm. they have the impression that their elections don't have any impact on what's going on uh, because decisions are being made on a, on a level so far removed from where they have anything to say. That's why I strongly uh, advocate for uh, for a stronger use of subsidiarity 
everywhere in the States and, uh, of course, in Europe and worldwide. Yeah, no, and when uh, the my my own work as a historian is in the 16th century Spanish Habsburgs, and I think yes. Charles V is a excellent example of just trusting his vice regal authorities here and there. And his son Philip II, yes. who is mocked as the paper king, he tried to do yes. everything himself, and he spent all day writing letters and reading letters. It must have been exhausting, and I don't think yes. it was uh, as as successful. But another thing I've learned no. just by reading history is how impassable the roads are. If you're trying to go from Krakow to um, Valladolid or something, you have to go through the forests to Germany, and then you have to take the Rhine up north, and then you have to take across the English Channel and then down to Spain. And it, the weather, the roads, the bandits, the, uh, the rebellious knights, the bad taverns, all of it took forever. And so an ambassador would be gone for years and years and would have, would have that authority. Um, but I think as you say, in the digital age, it's much better to know the people you're talking about and the topics rather than try to solve things centrally. Take, take the Holy, Holy See. If mm -hmm. you just follow the narrative that Vatican News puts out or uh, some journalists put out, if you don't know uh, Monsignores within the Vatican that trust you, and if you haven't proven to them that you are trustworthy and that you have the, the church's interest at heart, not just your government's interest, then you will never hear what's really going on at the Vatican, and then you cannot inform your government to make good decisions. Um, so um, ambassadors are always uh, part-time spies and part-time charmers, um, and that's okay. That's our job, and uh, we have to understand, but you can only do this by being here. Mm -hmm. You can tell the ambassadors that are, um, that are in Rome, like 80 ambassadors uh, to the Holy See are resident, and then there's about the same number uh, non-resident ambassadors. The ones who are here just know the non-residents have to scramble to get information. And that's, you know, just a few more arguments yeah. for this idea of subsidiarity. Right. And the Catholic Church is a perfect example because it's not just an empire, but it's a global, a global pilgrim church. Everybody is a Catholic, but it has to be different here and there and everywhere. And your example of um, you getting on so well with the Holy Father and Prime Minister Orban getting on so well, even though from the outside you would say, how can that be? The Pope wants immigrants embraced everywhere and uh, Prime Minister Orban wants hungry for the Hungarians. How can it be that people with such opposite priorities can get along so well? And what's the answer? Just because they're both... Well, yeah. my job when I arrived here was, of course, since 2015... Um, I arrived at the height of the migrant crisis. Yeah. I arrived after having helped in Budapest with the migrants. I was present when, the, when Hungary allowed them to all drive on and to put them on buses. I was present. So I was there in the heat of it, and then I, and then I moved to Rome. Um, and the Pope said things like people who build uh, fences um, are not Christian and things like that. But, you know, my job was to read what the Pope really said. Hmm. And as most journalists... Um, don't listen to what the Pope says, but have their preconceived ideas and then just pick the things from his speeches that fit their ideas. Like, for instance, during the papal visit this year, where they were desperate because in his speech to the political leaders, he said so many nice things about Hungary. <laughs> so they were hunting. They were hunting for one half yeah. line that they could use. It was so funny. I, I, had, I had the text of his speech beforehand and I played the game. I took a pencil and I read it and I loved it. It was fantastic. It was imbued with a deep knowledge of Hungary and the way Hungary is. But I, I played the game and said, which line will get into the headlines of BBC and Reuters and all, all those people? Yeah. 
And I found one where he said something about that in times of difficult, of crisis, one shouldn't go alone, one shouldn't go nationalistic, but it was in general, it wasn't addressed yeah. to Hungary. And they, you, you could see them running through it. Oh, oh, thank God he said that. <laughs> they put it into the headline, which had nothing to do with his yeah. speech. So what I'm saying is my job was to, to really listen to what the Pope said. I read every one of his speeches and I took notes when he spoke to the diplomats. Yeah. And he said things about migrants and the rights of, of nations that are very close to the Hungarian position. And then he said a few things where he goes further. But then this is, this is politics. You can disagree on the way how to how to concretely and he's always very careful he is not the way people think he is he's very balanced and he will always give each country the benefit of he will very rarely criticize countries and that's because he has an open mind he has a very open mind i'm going to tell you something that wasn't in the media um, but I, I heard it from a bishop an italian bishop who was present when the pope after his hungary visit now about three weeks ago he had the Italian bishop conference uh, in an audience alone with him. He had a prepared speech, and in a prepared speech, he said, Europe is losing its heart. Hmm. Rediscover your Christian roots in Europe. Rediscover them. And then he put the paper aside, and he said, just prepare that if you do that, Brussels will come after you, as they do with Hungary. Hmm. And then he took his paper back up. <laughs> so... That's what I call an open mind. He is listening. Yeah. He is seeing. He has conversations, and that will shape his ideas. He's not coming with a, a concrete block of ideas, and that's that's what's great about him. Yeah, and so do you have a sense of what is the correct balance for um, welcoming the, the stranger but also keeping your Christian integrity? I mean, this could be hungry, but I think it's the same question for Poland, for Denmark. Any place else that has an ethnicity that you call this its own ancestral homeland, but as a modern nation has a lot of people knocking at the door who are looking for a, a safe haven. You know, we in the United States, uh, only about one or two percent are indigenous people of this continent. Everybody comes from somewhere else. So for us, the argument yes. is a very different one in tone since we are all applicants at one point. I came here as a child, but some people came 100 years ago, 200 years and so on. How, how do you think that's true for a nation state? with an ethnic history tied to the land in a, in a European context? Well, first of all, we, of course, we Hungarians also arrived, but it was 1,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we are here since 1,000 years. The Hungarians have, a, they have their own language. It's unique in the world. They're very proud of it. And uh, they are, uh, I would say, a fiercely conservative or traditional country with conservative and traditional values. And uh, they had to fight for these during the time of communism. Um, so, but I, I would I would go I would go further, and and say, uh, Hungary, Poland, Czech, uh, Czechia, and um, Slovakia, are countries that have next to no Muslim population. Mm -hmm. They're not even homeopathic, so small, and have accepting every migrant. Uh, pouring into Hungary or neighboring countries at the beginning of 2015 would have meant 10,000 of Muslims into our country. Now, we've been watching how Muslim integration worked in France, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Germany. And um, if integration didn't even work well in these countries, how would they, it work in a country that has no experience with integrating Muslims? In fact, that has a very painful history of having been 
occupied by Ottoman troops for 150 years and um, having suffered under Muslim uh, government. And, and I can quote the Pope. I mm. can quote the Pope. The Pope says, if a country is not sure that it can integrate migrants, the country shouldn't take migrants. This sounds like a Hungarian argument yeah. to me. And um, my personal solution is every Christian has to help everybody who is in need and in suffering. We have to help our brethren, be they Christians or non-Christians. We have to help people who are fleeing uh, from places of war, like we do now with, with the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. We've taken over a million Ukrainian refugees. These are refugees. We cannot say the same for migrants, especially for illegal migrants. Um, because a state has sovereignty and a state has the right to decide who can enter uh, its borders, especially if the state is the outer uh, border of the, of the Schengen area. area. We, whoever crosses the Hungarian border from outside is within Europe and can move anywhere. Hmm. And as 10,000 cross per day, many of them without passport, all claiming to be from Syria, but of course they weren't, um, this forced Hungary to say, no, we have to build a fence and we have to control everyone. And um, so w what, what I'm saying is uh, every Christian must help, but nobody will ask you, Chris, to, uh, to take off the door from your house because people on the road are in need of food and beds. Um, you are the Lord in your house yeah. and in your family. And you will say, I have a right to have a door because I can decide who comes into my house. A state is in the same situation. So while I as a Christian have to help anybody that I can help reasonably, nobody can force me to, 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 to take out the door of my house mm -hmm. and say, walk in whoever wants to. Um, children, move aside. People need the space. You can do that, yeah. but nobody can force you to. And the same goes for a state. That's sovereignty. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's a good answer. And there's also, between accepting all migrants and ignoring the poor and the needy, there's a, there's a hundred things, especially diplomats can do by sending help or finding places closer to the troubled area where the cultural difference is not as great or the distance is not as great and so on. But again, yes. it's easy for me to say that sitting here in my, in my house in California, but uh, I leave it to the diplomats to, to work that out like yourself. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what is a, what is a 21st century European state look like? As far as what should a good Christian, what should a good Christian, what kind of laws should we have, or should it should it even be laws? Should it just be a, a, a the goal of rebuilding a cultural heritage that's largely ignored? I think. I um, I think it's very difficult now to imagine how a good Christian state in Europe looks like. We we have a few examples that are close to it. I think Hungary and Poland are very close to what what we imagine. You know what my problem is, Chris? My problem is that uh, a good state doesn't work if you don't have faith mm -hmm. uh, below the values. And my fear is that while my generation in Hungary and in Poland, we, we, we have Christian faith and we live that. And it informs, it, it imbues our decisions in politics. The young generation, unfortunately, are having their brains turned to mush by TikTok and yeah. by um, Instagram, they are swallowing up all these ideas um, that will hollow out the state and turn it into the same kind of woke-leaning um, Western European states that are that that are 
that are the reality. Yeah. So I I don't really I I, I see us in uh, you know Hungary and um, and Poland a bit like Rivendell you know in mm. uh, Lord of the Rings, last homely home. <laughs> but I don't know how long the tide will be able to be stemmed. I have hope, but I will only have hope when the young generation rediscovers their Christian faith. Yeah. In, in Hungary, we're majority Catholic. Um, we have about 15% uh, Calvinists. They are very outspoken, strong faith, uh, very uh, courageous and convincing, convincing Christians, yeah. and wonderful people. Uh, many members of the Orban government are Calvinists, for instance, Orban himself, and our president, Katarin Novak. Um, but the young generation of the Catholics are under the same temptations like everybody else. Mm -hmm. In, in Western Europe, and if you don't have strong families with many children where people grow up with the sacraments, live the sacraments, and have Christ as the first priority in their lives, a state won't continue. You don't hang on to conservative values without the faith underlying it. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have a real conversion in our countries and people don't really discover a relationship with God, these things will go away. Yeah. These things will blow away in the wind. You can't be conservative for conservative sake. It doesn't work. It only works if there is a faith behind it. If not, you will concede, you will negotiate, you will give up positions, and at some point you're, you're in Mordor. That's how it happens. Yeah, and there is something naturally challenging about being a, a young person to... to question the received wisdom of the elders and I think uh, the recent generations maybe that was rebelling against uh, Christian and conservative values but I think in this coming generation it'll probably be rebelling against this woke woke agenda uh, is when I teach in a secondary school one of the things I, I am mandated to teach is this gender stuff um, out of out of Sacramento and a lot of the kids say like none of this is true we don't we don't buy this like they just don't they can tell mm that are being fed a bunch of uh, uh, baloney. baloney, shall we say. And, is it, and so when I teach it, I'm like, look, here's what the state says. Uh, you don't have to believe this, but I want you to be familiar with the curriculum as it is prescribed to us, to repeat to you. Oh, dear. And I wouldn't want to be in your it's shoes. It's very interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting um, because it leads to really good discussions. And the kids are they're, they're natively smart. They can figure out you know these concepts on their own um and i'm i don't think they'll just take something foolish and run with it i think they will challenge it like anything else can can i say yeah. two things that one of them is it really helps to have a numerous family yeah if you have siblings you have a peer group that you talk about every day in the morning during lunch and in the evening and these are people you really trust if you're alone you only have the people in class mm -hmm. And uh, and your and your screen and your screen tells you, tells you you can rediscover yourself every five minutes as something new and don't listen to your parents and um, chop off parts of your body and you'll be something else and then reattach them and you'll be something else again. Yeah. Um, and you are if you have a big, I would say healthy, family, you will automatically have a normal point of view of things. Uh, and also, if you have many children, you cannot afford to buy the latest gadgets mm -hmm. and you cannot afford to have the most expensive phones and you cannot spend so much time online because you simply have life around you and other siblings who want to sit in front of the one computer you have and not <laughs> the, the seven. So all of this is good. It's also, um, it's also a place where 
um, our technocratic overlords can't put their wires in your brain yeah. when you have a family. That's one thing. The other thing is I, I, I didn't plan it that way when I wrote my book, um, The Habsburg Way. But, you know, I was approached to write a book about the Habsburgs. And my idea was let's talk about the, the core values of the Habsburgs. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that these things aren't as as frequent anymore nowadays as they were before. Yeah. So I, I set about and said, why don't I propose these things to everybody nowadays? The idea is that the reader gets an idea of the Habsburg family, but then ask themselves why? How could I try to be a bit like that in everyday life? So it, it's a bit of a handbook to fight this wave we're living in right now, these turbulent times. It's not a self-help book, as Michael Knowles writes in, <laughs> in his review. Um, well, in a way, it is. In a way, it wants to encourage us and says, if the Habsburgs were able to live these things, mm -hmm. I could do this in my everyday life, in my family, and I could most of all ask my politicians uh, to be on that level. I want politicians that are upright people, good people, that are there for their subjects, not subjects, for their voters in, in now nowadays, yeah. and um, that are ready to, to lay down their lives and their energy and their heart for, for their people in their country. All of that um, is sort of why I tried to write this book. And um, if Sophia Press goes along, I have a plan for a second volume. Oh, wonderful. Where I'm going to focus on, uh, it will hopefully be called Family Life, the Habsburg Way. And I'll, I'll focus on all the, all the, from engagement to having children to having grandchildren and how the Habsburgs did it. Um, so the kind of book that every family wants to have in the shelf yeah. So again, a self-help book, but with a Habsburg twist. No, that's very beautiful, and you have a lot to say about marriage and family. And I, I, I have you have six children. I have four, and I find that just having just being married is a good check on my own mistakes. You know, we each correct each other. We have to compromise on everything. I see my own foolishness when <laughs> when I do something wrong, and then I'm I'm wiser for it. I think people who are just on their own terms by themselves, redefining their own realities and being um, affirmed in everything they do by whatever YouTube channel they choose to subscribe to, they can quickly find themselves lost in the woods. Um, is there more um, you'd like to say about the family? And I'd also like to ask you about um, the chapter called A Good Death. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I could talk hours about family. I, it, it, it is the experience of my mm -hmm. life. I only had uh, two siblings. We were three. Uh, it was considered a large family in Germany when I grew up, I think, more or less. Yeah. But I regularly, we visited a family, friends of ours in, in Bavaria, and they were, uh, they were five daughters. Now, all of them very beautiful, it helped. But whenever <laughs> we visited them, I had something like, it was like nearly like a little pain inside mm. myself. And I said, they have something I would like to have. And always, it was, it was my idea of coziness and home. And when I married uh, a woman that had the same idea, uh, we, we were blessed and we were of course blessed. We, we were able to have children and we were able to raise them and they got along with each other. And all of them, thanks be to God, have the faith and live the faith. So it's almost too good to be true what we, are, what we have been blessed with. I'm grandfather since three weeks. Oh, congratulations. Um, so I'm already in the next level. Yeah. And uh, so family is the thing, jobs come and go. Money comes and goes, entertainment comes and goes, sex comes and goes. Um, but family, family is the thing, is the, the, the only thing beside your faith that will really, really make you happy for decades. Mm -hmm. 
and not just for weeks or days. And um, therefore, uh, go for it and go for I The chapter in my book is called um, Get Married and Have Many Children. Mm -hmm. I don't say have one and a half or don't say have three. I say many. And uh, as you will be able to say, uh, Chris, uh, family begins after three. Yeah. Uh, with two, <laughs> you can still pretend you're a young student couple. Yeah. Somehow, somehow you can get away with it. With three, it's over. <laughs> with four, you have to think twice to make a trip. And when you visit friends, you say, can we stay for the weekend? <laughs> and they say, hey, yeah. And we say, well, we're in six. Do you have six beds? You know, <laughs> and yeah. So that's that's on family. On a good death, I don't have too much experience with dying so far. But uh, the Habsburgs have. Yeah. That's why I wrote that chapter. Now, the Habsburgs have something that people nowadays don't have. They were fiercely aware that they were going to die, uh, probably sooner than later, and they would have to uh, render accountability to God for what they had done. As Catholics, they were strongly aware that they needed to die in a state of grace, but also as emperors, God would ask them how they had done what they had been, had been raised to do. And he would be very, very strict on that. Uh, they couldn't talk their way out of it. So. In all their lives, the death death was a, a distant thing on the horizon that you always, always, always had before your eyes. I would say nearly all the Habsburg emperors strongly lived that. In my book, I, I, I give an example how also the young ones had it. Um, when Maria Theresia, one of Maria Theresia's mm. daughters got um, smallpox. And you knew smallpox was either disfigurement or death. Uh, one of the, the good the good outcome was disfigurement for life uh, that your beauty was gone and the bad outcome was death mm. and uh, and I described this this one daughter of Maria Theresia who I think was 12 or 10 and she got smallpox and her first reaction was she asked for a priest and she made a life confession that was the first reaction and she died within very few days but good instincts yeah. I say good instincts um Die well, die well. And you know, when you make polls with people nowadays and you ask them what kind of death would you want? And most people would say a quick death without knowing in my sleep and yeah. all of that. And uh, I always like to answer with the image of Christophorus, you know, St. Christopher, Christophorus, who is a, a little medal that many drivers have in their cars because Christophorus was the giant who carried Christ on his shoulders across the water. And you prayed in the 16th century, there were lots of paintings of Christophorus, Christopher, because he guaranteed a good death. And a good mm. death was a death where you had time to prepare mm. for your death. The contrary of people nowadays who think that a good death is a quick death in your sleep that you never notice. God, no, I want to know when I die. I want to prepare. I want to have time to prepare for death. I prefer to be executed, but to know when I will die, mm. then this idea that sort of death would overcome me and I would, no, no pain and just go, no way, no, 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 no way. And the Habsburgs never went that way. There is another very nice story. I don't know which one of the Spanish Habsburg it was, one of the Philips, I think, who had, I think, cancer and he died a terrible death over mm. months. He was suffering horribly. And then he prayed God for three days without pain so he could do an examination of conscience and a good confession. Mm. And he got three days without pain. He did that, and then the pain continued for weeks. But, you know, what I'm saying is, get your priorities straight. Death 
is one of the most important moments in your life and uh, prepare for it. Get ready for it, pray for it, and try to, to die the way, I mean, uh, you couldn't do anything better than ordering online the little brochure, Death of an Emperor, about our, our last emperor, Blessed Emperor Karl. Um, if you go on, on the internet and you look for the Blessed Karl Prayer League, they have a homepage, and you can order that. It's a little brochure, it's, you can read it in one and a half, two hours. And it is just the last weeks of his life, the last hours, and the day of his death. It, it chokes me up just to think of it, mm. uh, the way this man died, and the way this man used his death to become a saint. Mm. This is something we can all do. We don't know where death will find us. Uh, will, will we be run over by a car? Will we slowly die in a hospital bed? Will we, be, uh, will we, uh, will we lose our ability to think straight? You know, we don't know this, but we can offer it up and we can, it, with him, I think, half of why he's a blessed today is the way he died. Hmm. And we can all do that. We can give this to Christ now. And uh, that's why I encourage this. I put this as a seventh chapter in my book, but I could have put it as the first. Hmm. But I didn't want to clobber people over the head yes. at the beginning. Well, that's true. And death is nothing to be avoided since unless you're a vampire, you're all, we're all going to pass through this door. Uh, and we should do so. The vampires too, sooner or later. Sooner or later. later. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I remember when I was in college and we read uh, Dracula, when they finally kill him, there's there's a little moment of relief where he's like, finally, thank you. <laughs> that's at least this nightmare is behind me. <laughs> I think that's connected to having children, uh, because when you're when you have children, they are not in your control it's as one um, psychologist said it's when your heart goes for a walk outside your body you sort of tr trust them to the world and really trust them to god as they make their way through the yes. world and yes you can't control it you don't know when they're going to die you don't know what's going to befall them you just have to have faith and it's a heck of an adventure um, both the fear of death and the reticence to have a family i think both reveal sort of a desire for control over one's own life, and a proper Christian doesn't have that. He surrenders no. to the will of God, because every bit of control we have is an illusion. Yes, and but I can give you one hopeful thought here. Yeah. The more children you have, the more probably it will be that they can help each other out mm -hmm. if you should die tomorrow. Yes. So you don't have to control everything. By having more children, you create a community that will look after each other. Yeah. And that is a very, for me, very hopeful thought. Yeah, no, I agree. Do you have uh, appetite for one more unrelated question? One more unrelated question. Go All right. ahead. I couldn't find your book on James Bond. Uh, and I'm curious, what is the thesis that you present? I know James Bond quite well. It was a series of books, little booklets about the size of your hand. It was called The World in 60 Minutes. The idea was, if you want to read everything you need to know about a topic, to be able to at least vaguely talk about it, in 60 like minutes. Like a digest. So, so, okay. Yes, there is, there is something like, a, you know, there's a book about God in 60 minutes. There is French wines in 60 minutes, you know. And they asked me to write two volumes. So I wrote one about Harry Potter and one about, one about James Bond. And I wrote it because I, was, I, I loved reading Bond books, uh, novels, and see the movies when I was a teenager. Yeah. And simply, I discovered them very early. I read all the novels, all the short stories. Uh, and in fact, the first half of my, it's, it's in German, but the first half of my book is really about Fleming, the novels and the short stories, which most people just know the movies. Yeah. And uh, some people read the books and the books are great because they're a holiday in a different time. 
in a time in the 60s when when the world was far more normal than today i'm afraid to say um it was it was you know just when he gets into a plane and and leaves for one of his missions and ian fleming just has this great way of of letting you savor the foods he eats and the, the exhaust smells of the plane and you you make holiday in the 60s mm -hmm. it's incredible and then it's it's I mean it's 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 thrillers um there is beautiful women there is um action and and an, a surprisingly uh, quirky protagonist he's um you know he's a, he's a bit like a like a bachelor mm -hmm. he has his weird ideas he has, wants his eggs exactly in a certain way and he hates tea <laughs> he said it's um he said it's it's mud it's responsible for the downfall of the empire and uh, he he has he's a bit, he's prissy yeah. how he wears his clothes and all that so all of that is wonderful yeah. Then of course I watched all the movies, so I wrote this little booklet. I enjoyed it immensely to write it, and but of course nobody in the states will ever read it because it's in yeah. German. Thank you for sharing that. Though that I was I was just very curious was, um, because that's a, such a very different thing than what I've read from you so far. Well, thank you. You didn't even ask. You didn't even ask me how my how my Austrian zombie movie would have. Been. Yeah, let's hear about the Austrian zombie movie. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> another, another well, time. I... But it would have been. It would have been really really cool i had some <laughs> some very 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 cool scenes in it i had them i had the protagonists fleeing to a farm and then fleeing through a sea of zombies with a harvester and uh, it would have been an incredible <laughs> bloodbath oh it would have been so wonderful no, but that's lovely well, alas never came about. every book and every movie <laughs> is as you say a vacation and for me who was a i was a student in vienna last century uh, and I've been to all these places, Schönbrunn, and I can see the statue of Maria Teresa in my memory. And I've been to the, you know, the, we used to line up at the opera at three o'clock for the standing room like everybody else. Oh, wow. So that was such oh, wow. a happy season of my life. And um, I get to spend it again with you uh, in in the Habsburg way. Uh, as, and now that I'm also a historian, I, I, I understand it a lot more than I did when I was a young student. So the book is is called The Habsburg Way. Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. It's published this year, 2023, from Sophia Institute Press. It's it, You can read it in an afternoon. It is such a delight. It really is a vacation to another time with an excellent guide who has a lot of wise things. So I highly recommend it, and I can't wait for the next one. If the publishers go with it, it's going to be called Family Life to Habsburg Way. That's perfect. And then, of course, at the end of the series, I'll be at uh, Cooking Recipes the Habsburg Way. <laughs> um, but... Let me just say at the end, I enjoyed our conversation very much, Chris. And let me encourage your your listeners, uh, if they want to follow me on Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, I have still a rather manageable crowd of uh, of listeners, uh, of of Twitter followers. I can still react to tweets. I I still read all the comments, and I also read when people write to me by message. And I also encourage people uh, to reach out to me when they're in Rome, and if it's possible, I will try to meet them. Because I love I love America I love Americans and uh, and uh, from my heart so see you on Twitter and uh, hopefully you one day in the states or in Rome I would love that Would you like to close with a, a blessing or a prayer? I will go with the most international and simple version of a prayer uh, to Our Lady Ave Maria Gratia Plena Dominus Tecum Benedicta tui mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Amen. 
name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Edward Habsburg recorded this conversation on Monday, June 12, 2023. That was the feast day of St. Yolanda of Poland. She was a Hungarian princess who married a Polish duke in the 13th century. This was just a few years before there was the first Habsburg king in Germany. Yolanda dedicated her life to pious works and caring for the poor, and upon her husband's death, she entered a convent of the poor Clares and was later an abbess. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every email. And thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. This is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and